Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team subscribe to the astros podcast joined by justin verlander getting the ball on opening day steve sparks here and i'm with lance mcculler tons of interviews robert ford joined by michael brantley alex bregman carlos correa returning to the lineup today highlights that is line in the right field and that's gonna get down for a base hit high deep and it's gone a grand slam follow your favorite team Subscribe to the Astros podcast. We definitely love playing in front of our fans in Minute Park. <laughs> For the H. They never said it would be easy. This is the Houston Astros Radio Network. Welcome back to Astropod. Uh, this is Steve Sparks. I'm with the Astros Radio Broadcast Team. And uh, we're happy to be here with you and to be, be able to provide a little bit of content. I'm really happy with uh, the guest that we have today. Not only one of my favorite broadcasters of all time, but one of my favorite people. And uh, I want to welcome in a longtime television broadcaster for the Houston Astros, 30 years in fact. It's Bill Brown. Bill, thanks for joining us. Sparky, my pleasure. And your golf game is fantastic, Sparky. <laughs> well, uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's all relative, though, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So we got a chance to do our social distancing uh, out on the golf course earlier this week with uh, Todd Callis. And uh, we spread out well. Todd and I walked, and, and you rode along in uh, uh, solo in your little golf cart and watched us sweat to death. But uh, we had a good time just catching up a little bit. You know, it's interesting because uh, for those who don't play golf or don't care, uh, there are rakes in the sand bunkers, and they have been removed, of course, for right. yeah. obvious reasons. So we have some new rules that we've adopted. Some of us who are a little more ancient than you guys, uh, if the ball goes in the bunker, you don't play it. You just toss it out of there. I like yeah. that very much. Yeah, it, we may it, stay with that. There's literally uh, no interaction at all. There's probably 10, 15 feet away from each other. <laughs> Uh, at, at a minimum, so it's good. But uh, it's it's great catching up with you guys, and always enjoy uh, seeing Todd and yourself, uh, Brownie. Uh, I want to ask you this: um, Does this particular uh, situation that we find ourselves in right now remind you of anything else that uh, you kind of went through uh, as a baseball professional broadcaster? The only thing that was somewhat similar was the strike in 1981. It lasted. Ah. 50 days, uh, the season started as planned, and sometime in June, the players walked out on strike, and then the 50 days, and then came back in, I believe, early August and finished out the season after that. Right. So, I mean, when you're talking about being able to to get baseball back in front of the, the viewers, the listeners, uh, whatever the case may be, in whatever form or fashion feel like and I and I say this because of after 9/11 we felt like uh, as a group uh, us players didn't feel like we should be out there we, it just felt like it was so insignificant until we got out there and then we realized right. how important it was to everybody else and and probably it resonated more with you on that front than it ever had before, right? You know, yes. you, you see the full houses, but you just don't uh, quite absorb it all until you go through something like that, correct? Right. And when we saw President Bush throw that that perfect strike to Todd Green, the backup catcher for the Yankees uh, at Yankee Stadium, I mean, that really gave us a jolt. And then 
uh, Jack Buck, you remember a uh, kind of a frail Jack yeah. Buck standing yeah. at home plate uh, in that microphone and, and saying, yeah. should we be here? Yes. Yes, we should. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. we were all on board. I mean, we got, we were really moved and, and touched that we were able to, to impact part of the healing process for America. Remember that story about when president Bush was warming up under the stands in the batting cage. And Derek Jeter walked by. Did you read that story and, and said something to him? I don't remember the, uh, the specifics. I've, I've seen a little bit of a documentary of that whole whole thing. What did he say to him? He said, well, Mr. President, there's only one rule for you. Don't bounce it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, for, he's forgotten to tell a few people that, including 50 Cent, right? <laughs> there's Was been some bad first. Yeah, time? that. That's one of the oh, worst of all time. I, I remember an animal could have done better than that. An animal yeah. would have been better. A four-legged animal. Hey, I think it was 1998, and uh, Adam Sandler was at our ballpark when I was with the Angels, and he was promoting uh, Waterboy, uh, the, the comedy that came out uh, just about a month after that. Mm -hmm. And he was going to throw out the first pitch, and Terry Collins, our manager, who was former Astro manager, who you knew very well, Yep. came in to say something funny to Adam Sandler, of all people. That's like the, the perfect no-no for every, anybody is to try to be funny in front of a comedian, right? <laughs> but Terry yeah. Collins tried to say something funny to him, and of course Adam Sandler kind of rolled his eyes and said, stick to your day job or something like that. <laughs> and we all got the biggest kick out of it. Uh, but uh, that, I think it was Terry Collins who, who said something to the effect of not to bounce the ball uh, to Adam Sandler. <laughs> But it's, it's, yeah, you know, and uh, we talk about what do we miss most. You know, we do miss baseball. We love baseball. And, and Bill, uh, you can speak to this uh, more so than probably just about anybody after retiring after the 2016 season. What do you miss most about baseball? I think I know your answer. The conversations with yeah, people at the stadium. Yeah, not yep. the on-air part as much as the before and after games part. Yep. just. You know, and one thing that I know you know all these broadcasters very, very well, but that to me was probably the highlight of the day would be talking with a broadcaster for another team and sharing yep. notes and things of that nature. Yep, it's same same with me, exactly. It's, a, it's the relationships, and now with the, as many games as we play in our division, I would say uh, the American League West, uh, the four other teams in our division, some of the, the broadcasters on those other teams, whether it be radio or television, have become some of my best friends. So we get really close, and that's some of the things that we miss most is just the relationships uh, as we as we uh, sit out these first few games of the year. You know, you think about the winter months, and no, you might make an occasional call to, in my case, maybe Rick Riz with Seattle or somebody yeah. with another club. But but pretty much uh, go for, for, you know, four, five, six months without even – conversing so there's this time that we're waiting for to catch up and it's like a reunion well i know we get to see you quite a bit bill uh you're at the ballpark and and you stayed active with the team and you've done you've taken your hobbies out there you've taken a lot of uh really nice photographs too but uh what else you've been doing to, to stay busy with diane since retirement well we have some some charity things and uh you know hey <laughs> You know, it's very nice that there's something to do. Uh, sure. I know, you know, Diane, of course, uh, maybe maybe Michelle, too, your wife, uh, is cleaning out closets a little bit more than in the past. Uh, yeah. The, ho the house is probably cleaner than it's ever been. You know, things of that <laughs> nature. The yard is immaculate, all these things. <laughs> Well, okay, so here's here's you and I's first tie. I, I don't know if you remember when we first met, but I don't think you and I had met before uh, a charity golf tournament, and it had to have been 15 years ago at least. It was a Doug Drabeck golf tournament up in the Woodlands. I think that was the first time you and I met, Bill. And so. it, was also, it was also the first time that uh, our wives had met, and your wife Diane was sitting at, a, at the table with, uh, with my wife and, and myself, and she had just mentioned to my wife that uh, Fox Sports at the time, and I would just I just retired. It was the year after I had retired, and she said that Fox Sports was looking for some ex baseball players to do part of their pre and post game stuff, and she put that bug in Michelle's ear, and, and Michelle talked me into uh, to calling Murphy Brown, 
who was the executive producer uh, with, with Fox Sports, and I had lunch with him, and I was on air the next night. Yeah, how quickly does it happen sometimes? And now you're an institution. But, you know, I remember you were riding in our car over to the golf course. Yeah. And then Diane was going to take the car and go shopping or something while we spent about, what, seven hours playing golf. It's, <laughs> it's a good way to blow a day. But yeah. uh, you were in the back seat, and I remember she said to you, you know, Steve, you really, you'd be a natural at this. And so it wound up that she should have been your agent after all. Yeah, yeah. She's she's always trying to get in my wallet. She says I owe her. <laughs> you know, the the timing couldn't have been more perfect though. I mean, with my kids at their age, after playing professionally for 19 years and all that travel, uh, I wanted to be as close to my kids as possible. So doing those pre and post game shows uh, for the Astros for 7 years came at a really good time because we never traveled. You know, if the team was on the road, you guys were off in Cincinnati or where San Francisco, whatever we did the the uh, broadcast myself and Kevin Eschenfelder or or Patty Smith or Bart Ennis uh, from a studio downtown. So it, it made things really nice not having to travel for those years. True, and uh, you know I will say this about you, and I just want to say it, and I know it's not a setup or anything like that. But uh, like Jim Deshays and like some other uh, former players who have gone into broadcasting, you've really worked at this. And, and it's not just, hey, I'm a former player and I have some insights from playing. No, you're, you know, you're, you're meeting players, you're talking, you're staying current, you're interested in them and their stories and telling that. Um, and the other thing is the play-by-play, -play, which <laughs> this happened with, with Larry Durker. And, you know, that is the hardest thing, I think, from from talking with former athletes to pick up because you had mm. no formal training. You know, Robert right. Ford has had plenty of formal training. Todd Callis, uh, this is what they've done their whole lives. But this was kind of thrown at you and you had no idea that that was going to be a part of your job. And that must have been extremely difficult. But you've worked at it and you've gotten better and better every single year. And of course, you're Locker room interviews, that's the highlight after the <laughs> clinches. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate you saying that, first of all. Uh, second of all, I found out three days before uh, I started the job as a radio broadcaster, I found out that I was going to uh, be asked to do play-by-play -play as well for two or three innings a game. Uh, so there was a lot of panic involved and a lot of conversations <laughs> with, with you and with Robert and a lot of other people around the league. Uh, let's just say I was thankful for those first two years that the Astros stunk. Because <laughs> I don't think a, a whole lot of people were listening or I would have gotten through those first couple of years because, man, there, there was a lot of egg flying in my face. Because that, that's a, it's a really it's, – it's, it's an art that you guys do. It's, it's, I know something that you studied and, and, and done to uh, almost perfection sometimes that uh, – I know you're very self-critical of yourself, but you guys make it look really easy. You know what was crazy, though, back in uh, the Atlanta Braves, uh, terrible, terrible days. We would go into Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, and they'd have maybe two or 3,000 people in the stands. Yeah. And uh, we'd have a large booth on, along the first baseline. And they would put uh, our telecast in this booth and they would put uh, Milo Hamilton and Alan Ashby doing the radio in the same huge booth. I mean, it would have been the space that normally about three or four booths would have occupied. But no sound barrier? Huge, no sound barrier. Wow. So we were all, you know, we were hearing ourselves more than the crowd. and. Wow. Uh, that was weird. <laughs> that is weird. You know what? We had a, a, a similar instance uh, at Target Field a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago. It was super cold. And by that time, I, I think there had been a delay. And uh, we ended up starting late, started the broadcast. And most of our windows were shut except for our radio booth. We kept it open for whatever reason. Robert loves to have the window open no matter what. And I don't, I don't blame him. You know, you, you can feel the crowd. And when you're working – most of the game in play-by-play, -play, I think you want to be engaged like that. But uh, I'm also into the comfort and being warm and, and, and not get sick. But uh, on that night, uh, he had the window open. And people all the way almost on the other side of the stadium could hear Robert's call. 
because his voice was carrying that far, which was funny. I mean, you, you think at Target Field, you know, Major League Stadium, how in the world can you hear this down the first baseline? But a lot of people said that, yeah, we could hear the Astros broadcast tonight. It was pretty funny. We were talking at, at golf. Uh, you know, I mean, golf, uh, doing golf broadcasting. You know, they're sitting up mm. in a tower. And, uh, oh, you don't dare uh, yell and cheer at golf like you do at a baseball, right. football, basketball, hockey game. Yeah, it's a and whisper. And there's tennis. Yeah, it's just totally different. The the bowling the environment of broadcasting. Bowling is another one. Yeah, it's just yeah. a totally different approach. Yeah, that's funny. Um, Got to ask you about the being on the Astros Hall of Fame advisory board, what that's been like. So two classes have been voted on now. There was an induction last year with quite a few guys in the 2019 class. And six, I believe, in this year's class, 2020. What's it been like on the advisory board of that? It's been a tremendous experience. And I would leave somebody out if I tried to, to name everybody. But you know Mike Acosta, and he's the historian. Mike does about six or seven jobs around the Astros. Right. Yeah. He's invaluable. Uh, but one of his jobs is the historian. He he gets all of us together on the committee. And of course, Reed Ryan set the whole thing up. And uh, we have Allison Footer, Brad McTaggart, Larry Durker, and Bob Durrell of, of Sabre, Society of American Baseball oh, Research, uh, Mike yeah. Vance, uh, Craig Biggio. So we, we have a cross-section of former players and Biggio and Durker. Uh, some broadcasting folks, uh, people from local clubs like Sabre, uh, writers like Allison Footer and Brian McTaggart. We we have a really good cross-section. That's good. And uh, people, and you know, the, Allison and Brian know the history of the team extremely well. Right. And this is what we're talking about here. Okay, in the, in the entire history of the 58 years of this club, uh, who should be a Hall of Famer? So you have to be in touch even though you weren't here and maybe weren't even born in the case of Allison and Brian, mm -hmm. uh, what, wh you know, where did these people in the sixties fit in and, uh, to get some kind of a context uh, with where we should go with this hall of fame. And it's been a really interesting experience and everybody has been terrific to work with. So I know Bill that your name has had to have come up. So how are you trying to deflect part of that? Well, I look at it as if it's a team. So, mm -hmm. We have we have Gene Elston and Milo Hamilton, right? We right. have two yeah. broadcasters. Yep. We we don't have twenty five players yet on the team. Okay, I got you. Yeah, I know where you're oh, going. So you know where I'm going with this. So yeah, that until, makes sense. Until we get more than twenty five players, we've got our two broadcasters. We don't need any more broadcasters. No, nobody else <laughs> has deducted that yet, have they? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but um, you know it, it's interesting that uh, of course Mike Acosta has done all this research on other teams Hall of Fames and Cincinnati is the oldest professional team as you well know uh, uh, the Reds the Reds Hall of Fame has not had one broadcaster for for all the hundred and you know you're 40 kidding. years and no until Marty Brenneman and so okay. Marty Brenneman who just retired is going to be inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame in 2020. And from what I heard, he is going to be the only inductee in 2020, uh, which is quite a tribute. They set it up that way because they wanted Marty to get all the focus. And they have some <laughs> outstanding players. He deserves players. it. He does. Oh, yeah. But, but, but he's, he so he's many great. outstanding players. You know, I was reading the list of uh, Reds players down through history who are not in their Hall of Fame. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, that guy's not in there. He's not in there. Uh, and but. Certainly, Marty is deserving, and he will get the focus this year, and he will be the first broadcaster. And they have had Hall of Fame broadcasters uh, in the, the history of that club. So, you know, each team is different in the way that it sets up its Hall of Fame and inducts people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a pretty big difference in the way it works. So I know you're going to uh, have some extended interviews with most of the – members of this year's class. And I'll read off the six members going into the 2020 class for the Astros Hall of Fame. Bill, and it's Lance Berkman, of course, Roy Oswalt, uh, Cesar Cedeno, Billy Wagner, Bob Watson, and the first owner for the Astros, Judge Roy Hoffines. And I know you got a chance to talk to, to Roy's daughter. Uh, you talked to, to Deanie Hoffines not too long ago, didn't you? 
Yes, and uh, Deanie's a delightful lady who's had quite a career herself. She's uh, written songs in Nashville, uh, and she knows the history of this team, and she is a great storyteller from those from those teenage years. So she talks about, as you'll hear, uh, the time she spent with her dad during the formative teenage years as a fan of baseball, even before the Colt 45s. And mm-hmm. then uh, her son, Din Mann, uh, Judge Hoffine's grandson, and yep. we've known him, you and I, and so many of us in the business as, as somebody in. who had tremendous impact with MLB.com, running the coverage there for many years. So this is a family steeped in baseball tradition. Roy Hoffines was a state representative, county judge of Harris County, and mayor of Houston. But when he decided to get involved with the effort to bring Major League Baseball to Houston, that began his journey that led to his place in the Houston Astros Hall of Fame class of 2020. Hoffines, who also pioneered FM radio after World War II, was a powerful orator who could convince people to do things they were not initially inclined to do. His daughter, Deanie, described growing up with her dad. My most exciting times with him, and often, were to get to go to the Buff games out at Buff Stadium. So, because I was the one that loved baseball so much. So, and I'd go with with him. That was like daddy-daughter day, you know? And it used to bother me that, that... we get mosquitoes, you know, like crazy. But what bothered me the most was that um, it would start to rain. I mean, I'm, I'm so many games got rained out, I can't even begin to tell you. And I would be so upset because it would be cutting into my time with Daddy, you know. And so we'd head back out here, around, out here in the this was out in the country back then, uh, where our our farm started out as a farmhouse and then ended up as a big house that Daddy built and dug the pool himself and and uh, ended up selling the land between Westheimer and San Filippi, where we lived on Yorktown Road, to help pay for uh, getting us the team here. That was it, that was part of the, that was part of the deal. That's how we, we bought a team. Yeah, well, Mr. Smith, of course, and some, there were some other investors as well, but that was our main, our main contribution. I think Dad's brain was one a rather large contribution in his vision. But back to the point, baseball was, was really my quality time with him. As Deanie and her father attended many Houston Buffs games, they had some interesting conversations. One of them proved to be historic. When we were driving home from, from another rainout from Buff Stadium one night. I was just, just kind of really disappointed. I, I was very excited, and I was crazy about Solly Hemus, and he was having a really good night. And we left, and we're going home, and there weren't many times that he drove himself either, because he, when he was mayor, there was always a policeman driving us everywhere. But he was driving himself, and, and we were in the car, and we're going down the Gulf Freeway. I remember it so well, because I, I, I was afraid you didn't, you didn't really want to, you didn't really want to uh, bother his brain with something that, or his time interfering in his time. That he, that he was, you know, we're always working in his mind. So you just really didn't want to say anything real stupid or, you know, you just want, really wanted to lift him up. You just didn't want to upset him in any way. So I just kind of casually making conversation. I had the radio on, too. I'd make him because we like to listen to the radio together and the songs and all that. So I, I said to him at one point, I said, I was really disappointed. There's too many, been too many, too many rain checks. You know, and I said it cuts into my time with you, and I don't know why they can't just play baseball inside. And I'll never forget it because he he turned the radio off real fast, and he and he got very serious with me. I really thought I I thought he really was going to say you ask too many questions because I, I, I that's why I don't ask too many questions now because there were there were so many times that I guess I just was like any other curious child. I just would want to know this or that or the other. And it's really not good to, to not not invite your children's questions and and try to answer them because that's how we learn as kids, you know? So, but I think I must have asked too many questions at the wrong time too many times. So the minute I asked, why can't we play baseball inside, I thought when he turned the radio off and pulled off the, the, free, the Gulf Freeway, I thought that I had... I had Asked one too many questions, and then it was a stupid question or something. I thought I might be in trouble, 
because when I got in trouble, I mean, he didn't holler at you and he didn't even, he just made you feel like a fool, you know? He didn't, he didn't, uh, he wasn't mean. He would just uh, kind of grumble, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, no. This may be one of those grumbling moments. <laughs> and uh, he said, little dog, what? I remember so well, I could just hear him. Little dog, what did you just say? And I thought, oh, God, it's, I am in trouble. And I said, well, I just, I was just wondering why they couldn't play baseball inside because then we'd never have to leave the game. He said, well, I thought that's what you said. I just wanted to make sure. So I, he turned the radio back up, pulled back up on the freeway, and we went home and never, we never, he drove home all the way out here from out Gulf Freeway to, to here where we are in the gallery area. It was really just the country. Anyway, so he didn't say another thing about it. Not even another thing about it. And um, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I won't bring that up again. <laughs> so, I mean, a segue from, let's see, I was about 10 then. So I was about, what, 17 when the, when the, when he started working to get the team here with uh, Kirksey and it was really George Kirksey at the, begin- the beginning, George Kirksey and I think Mr. Cullinan and Mr. Smith and uh, they were sort of the genesis of everything. They, they really helped a lot. Within six years, uh, he was promising the, what well, was then the National League. He had to convince them that they didn't want to give us a team, a franchise, because our weather was so horrible. So dad, you know, told him we're going to, we're going to, you know, it's so weird because I mean, he promised it before we knew we had it. That was another thing he did. He would pledge something to put himself under the gun to be sure that he could keep his pledge. He would keep his promise. And he did every time that he would make, make a pledge. He would figure out a way to make sure it got pulled together. I think that gave him incentive, the drive to do it. I really do. So he said, well, we're going to play, we're, we're going to play baseball inside. And I remember Mr. Johnson, well, then how's that supposed to happen? He says, well, we're going to, we're going to put together a coalition and uh, maybe a bond issue and get the money to put together a stadium. At that time, he didn't even have a dome in his mind. I don't think he had the dome in his mind until we went over to Rome to sign the papers for the, uh, I think when he bought the circus, he wanted to do it in the Rome Coliseum. And not that it had a dome on the top of it, but he, he liked all the shapes in Italy of the domes. You know, he, he liked that. As a matter of fact, if you notice Channel 13, and he was, he was part owner of Channel 13 here, KTRK over on Bissonette, it's, it's got the shape of a dome. So he was kind of a dome freak, you know? <laughs> and so um, that, that's really where, where he got the idea, was just, just that love the shape, just love the shape and love the history of the Rome Coliseum and... You know, he, he, anything he got involved in, he would also, also study it to the nth degree. He would learn everything you could possibly know about it and remember it. Judge Hoffines and R.E. Bob Smith joined forces as investors with Craig Cullinan and George Kirksey, who laid the groundwork with National League owners. They were rejected when they tried to purchase the St. Louis Cardinals and move them to Houston. They then focused on an expansion team and Hoffines convinced the owners there would be a domed stadium to deal with the weather. Hoffines' grandson, Din Mann, literally grew up in the Astrodome. My birth coincided with the opening of the Astrodome. So I arrived at uh, a fairly serendipitous and, and historically significant time in Houston, and my granddad was uh, such a larger-than-life character and I was just naive enough not to realize all of that and to really respect him as, uh, as the person that he was. And he and, and my grandmother, um, the original Deanie, were um, just magnificent grandparents. So first of all, I saw him through the prism of a grandfather and as a grandson who looked up to him and thought that everybody's grandfather had a dome stadium and, a, and an amusement park to uh, show off, uh, but he really catered to us quite a bit in terms of, and relied on us as a little family focus group to help determine some of the features that would be included in the uh, Astrodome and in World as well. So to say that I was a lucky kid is a real insult to luck because it was so much more than that. He was uh, 
exemplary in every way you can possibly imagine. And But I loved him for the simple things, and I respected and admired him for the person that he was as much as I was, as much as I did the way the uh, entire area of Harris County and the region, and, and if not the world, respected what he accomplished. Man fondly recalls his memories of the top Astrodome moments. Can't leave out the 1980 playoff run. That was the beginning of, of, of a realization of the electricity that was, that was uh, possible in that place. And the 80 playoffs were, you know, if you'll, you'll recall that we had J.R. Richard on the team and he had suffered the stroke and wasn't able to, to continue that year. And, but the, the, the sound of, the, of one half of the dome yelling Houston and the other half of the dome yelling Astros is something that has stuck with me my whole life. Uh, some of the Oilers games that happened in there, uh, I wasn't there in person the night of the Miami Dolphins football game, but we were living in Southern California and watching that game on national television. I walked into school that next day in Los Angeles and was greeted by my history teacher who proceeded to bow at my feet because of the electricity that he had witnessed on the uh, on the night of Earl Campbell's rookie year breakout party against the Miami Dolphins. When, when the song busted out, the Love You Blue signs emerged and the pom-poms were waving. So, and after that, 86 in the playoffs that year uh, were just almost indescribable. The noise levels and the excitement and the certainty that if that had gone to another game that Mike Scott would have finished off the Mets and the roof might have might have uh, elevated off the building for, for a fraction of a second or two. So I remember, that, I remember all of that very vividly. And I remember the, the, the Bad News Bears and Breaking Training being filmed there. I remember in that game one against the Mets, Billy Doran making a great catch and the camera panning into the crowd. And I was in there as a college student and high-fiving my buddies right after Bill Doran made that catch. So, so that was uh, a little claim to fame as just a fan in the stands. And, and, and I was... Uh, tickled about that and of course we're, that series and the Philly series it turned out differently but uh, those are two of the best series of all time not just in the Dome but in baseball history so those were magnificent moments but I'll say even the events that transcended sports and went into uh, you know the, the rodeo was something that always stood out to me That just the wagon races as a little kid you look forward to something, something simple and fun and exciting and you can relate to it, but the, the wagons racing around that dome field was, uh, those were uh, a real joy to witness. Man who moved from sports editor of the Houston Post, eventually into a position of executive vice president of content at BAM Tech, the streaming services provider spun off from MLB Advanced Media. His role in the innovation of sports coverage was traceable to his upbringing. You know, I, I got it from him directly and got it from my mom and, and, and learned a lot about, um, the way he thought in terms of wanting to entertain people and wanting to pull them together and wanting to have features that were innovative and uniquely Texan. Um, and not only uniquely Texan, but uniquely Houston. You know, he, he believed that Houston was underrated and that Houston deserved a spot on the world stage and that Houston needed a big old flag in the planet. And the Astrodome was a lot of that. And I also learned from him about the concept just of why not us? Why not have a gigantic scoreboard that has, has electronics on it and lights and, and, and music and, and entertainment and a, and a quality to it that was part of the show? Why not have uh, you know, the kind of thinking that would give larger dugouts on the seat of the on the on the floor of the Astrodome, so that more fans could say they were sitting behind the dugout. And it was just that that level of ingenuity and these concepts of inventiveness that were an inspiration, not just to me, but to so many fans and so many folks who worked in that building, even with visiting clubs. I mean, I've, I can't tell you enough just how much great feedback I've gotten through the years from people like Bill Giles, you know, who had been at the club. And you know, basically start to learn about baseball being this pretty small family, if you would get right down to it. And that was part of the magic of it, is that my granddad 
basically became a part of that family. And he made sure that the building and that the culture and that the place was going to be uh, profoundly captivating. And so I really just, he, he taught me so much about not settling and always asking, why can't this be done better or differently? Um, and I cherish that. Deanie Hoffines and her son, Din Mann, articulate the legacy of Roy Hoffines. He was definitely a visionary, self-made, made dreams come true, and brought a load of people along. We can get right down to it, probably hundreds of thousands, because the way he changed the face of uh, the face of the game, uh, you know, we, it became a whole other whole other kind of game during that period. It's a whole other deal, you know. He, he just reinv he just reinvented the wheel as we knew it in so many areas. So more people were, more people were paying attention to Houston from all over the world and coming to Houston, and a lot of people moved here because of that. They came to a game and loved the town and stayed. <laughs> Let's blame him for that. There's a piece of that facility and that complex in every venue that's followed. So it was and is this trailblazing representation of what can be in terms of these city centers that are popping up and these shopping complex that are complexes that are that are not just about parking and getting out of your car and going to buy something, but it's all experiential. And so I believe that, you know, when, the, when it's all said and done in terms of the storytelling and the history, that maybe everybody doesn't realize it, but there's so much that started there that it's almost mind-boggling how fantastic it is that Houston was the birthplace of, of the modern multi-sports, multi multi-entertainment type of experiential destination and that's a that's a truly meaningful and mesmerizing and, and larger than life thing that that you know to me it's, it's just an extension of my grandfather himself and that that doesn't make you excited and, and proud and i don't know what will the late judge roy hoffines the driving force behind bringing major league baseball to houston takes his rightful place in the Houston Astros Hall of Fame in 2020. Okay, Brownie, that was that was fantastic. I mean, just to to hear some of those stories from Deanie and Den uh, just brings that back so many good memories. And you want to hang on to that history. And I used to always hear about the the stogies, the cigars of Judge Roy Hoffines uh, that would kind of linger through the Astrodome and. Deanie, I think, has even said that she could smell it when she went back in, you know, 20 years later, she could smell her, her dad's cigar. Uh, what, what were some of the stories you heard about maybe even the suite he had there? Well, he had a, a fabulous suite, and, and I know that you know that there was a presidential suite. So yeah. <laughs> President Lyndon B. Johnson actually spent the night there when he came in for uh, the opening of the Astrodome. Just, uh, and, you know, they had a bowling alley. They had a chapel. It was crazy. It's like there six was stories, line. right? Yeah, I, I think it was Bob Hope. One of the comedians uh, had a line when the all these quotes were being assembled about the opening of the Astrodome, 1965, and uh, Bob Hope or, or one of the comedians said, "Well, gee, if they had had a cemetery there, you would never would have had to leave." <laughs> yeah, he had the barber shop. He had the bowling alley, movie theater. What else do you need? Exactly. But okay, another story about Judge Hoffines and the cigar. Carl Warwick yeah. told this. So okay. Carl was playing for the Colt 45s and they played in Colt Stadium 62, 3, and 4 before the Astrodome opened in 65. So during one of those years, I think Carl was here in uh, 63, I believe. So he told the story about uh, Judge Hoffines and R.E. Bob Smith were the two owners of the team. Okay. And they were they worked together extremely well to get the team to Houston as an expansion team and build the Astrodome. So they decided one day that they were going to have a hitting contest between the two of them, what? Sparky. Hitting? Yeah. 
hitting, believe okay. it or not. Okay. These two guys. Okay. So Bob Smith was a big workout fanatic. I mean, this guy he had he had massive biceps. You know, he went to the gym every day, lifted weights. Yeah. Judge Hoffines lifted cigars, and uh, and he worked. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you know, a total total physical mismatch. And okay. I think if there had been betting, well, there was betting between the two of them. But if, if the team had been betting, they all would have been on Bob Smith to win this hitting contest. Right. But, you know, you've played with these guys and you've played golf with these uh, massive NFL linemen who can't even hit a golf ball because they're so muscle bound. Right. Right. Sure. So I, I think uh, Bob Smith came down kind of on that side of things. And so they both asked Carl Warwick to pitch batting practice to them because they both were very competitive and wanted to win. They, they were both friends with Carl and they knew Carl would just groove, you know, a 70 mile per sure. hour fastball right down the middle. And that's what they needed. So they both. Mm -hmm. And so Bob Smith gets in this cage and he cannot get a ball out of the cage. You know, he just, he just can't master hitting. Just a too big. He's okay. yeah. He, he's way too muscle. He's trying to hit everything over the fence and uh, he can't he can't get anything out of the cage. And Judge Hoffines gets up there, and he's you know he's got his white shirt and his cigar hanging out of his mouth. And he said, you know, how how weird would that be for a pitcher to look in and see that? <laughs> so you know, this guy's he's behind a desk all day, speaking to luncheon groups and dinner groups and everything. And uh, so he starts throwing to Judge Hoffines line drive after line drive right up the middle. And he wins. Really? Yeah. And then he slipped Carl Warwick a $50 bill afterwards. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> wow. Hey, you know, you, you mentioned Carl Warwick, uh, Bill, and, and it just made me think about who do you stay in, in touch with from some of the teams in the past, some of the, the players in the past? Because I know you and Carl – Although you didn't broadcast any of his games, he became one of your best friends, didn't he? Yeah, we're great friends. Uh, Carl lives out in the Champions area. He and his wife, Nancy, terrific friends. And and uh, we do get together and we talk on the phone. Uh, but I love those stories that Carl tells. Bob Aspermani, of course. You've met Bob. Yes. Uh, terrific. And, you know, the late Jimmy Wynn and, you know, Bob Watson. And mm -hmm. uh, we, we have really been blessed to have so many guys who have stayed here after their playing or managing days to live in Houston. Oh, I met uh, Hal Smith was the catcher for the original, uh, Colt 45s in 1962. He ran a you, restaurant here many years ago. So it's his name was Hal crazy. Smith. You knew who Hal yeah. Smith was, right? <laughs> yeah. There, there were a it, few of them, weren't there? Well, Hal Smith, uh, played Otis, the, the town drunk in Mayberry on the Andy <laughs> Griffith show. <laughs> Okay, I missed that one. I, I did yeah, not know that. <laughs> that was Hal Smith. I think he grew up, by the way, in the same hometown that uh, Jim Deshays did. What was the name of that town? Molina, New York. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. Well, this is a perfect segue. I just said Otis. Uh, there's an Otis in Pearland who wants to know what it was like calling all those games for, for Biggio and Bagwell all those years. Oh, it was pure delight. Uh, you know, they, they were... Not only were they great players as far as the gifts they had, but they were just both grinders. They just yeah. loved being there and putting in the extra work, going into the gym. And uh, I remember Biggio when he was converted to outfield. He had been playing second base, and then Jeff Kent came in, and he did a lot of extra running uh, that winter to get ready for playing center field. Uh -huh. And uh, and he would always tell me, well, you know what the big difference is? And I said, no. He said, running that far out to my position every inning. Yeah. You know what? They, <laughs> they, they began to start tracking some of that, uh, a lot of these teams, about uh, how far it is from left field to the, the dugout in Oakland, say. And if yeah. Michael Brantley has to do that two games in a row in Oakland the third day, they want to give him a rest and let him DH to get him off his legs because of that long run from left field to the dugout. Uh, that is crazy that the analytics have gone that far with it. I'm Isn't not it? surprised, but it does make sense. It really does. Hey, what do you think it would be like uh, coming back and calling games in empty ballparks? I think it would be very weird. I think it's more weird in radio. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's more weird in radio, and I think you're going to have the same experience if you do this that we had in that Atlanta game I'm talking about, because I would hear Milo 
he'd maybe be be a half a second ahead of me. Oh yeah. And I'm trying to get my brain trained. And no, I can't say exactly what he's saying. So um, that's probably the way it's going to be, even though there is physical separation between the booths in these major league parks. Now um, it's still, you, it's going to be, it's going to be so quiet. You're going to hear the other broadcasters if you do this. Okay. Um, I don't know if you remember this very well, but it was very vivid to me and it was nerve wracking and exciting and, and anxious and everything that you would think. But toward the end of the, one of the seasons, and I want to say it was around 2009 or 2010, uh, your partner, Jim Deshaies' daughter, was graduating from college. In the last series of the season, he was going to go to her graduation, and I filled in. And we were yep. in New York. It was just a three-game series, and uh, one of your buddies was working for the, for the Mets, Wayne Hagen, and uh, we went and had dinner the night before. And I believe the night of the game, I was at the field and I was trying to get prepared for the game. And, and I'm trying to lead myself in, into what you taught me that night. But I started to panic because people were in our booth and your buddies and you're your toward the end of the season. And these games did not mean squat to you. Right. But you're talking, having these conversations right up until our opening. You know, I'm getting ready to go. I, so I did not have a chance to sit down and think about what I was going to talk about or just have a moment of silence just to, just to relax. And you guys talked right up until we went on air. And I just, I just stumbled all over everything. But it taught me. What it taught me was, was that probably over-preparation is not the way to go about uh, putting together your best broadcast and to relax a little bit more. But I couldn't at that point. But right. you probably went to, through some of that progression from the beginning of your career toward the end, didn't you? Right. Well, I suffered from burnout uh, when I was with Houston because in Cincinnati, we didn't do every game on TV. Uh, we might oh, yeah, do, that's right. Back at that point, we might have done maybe 50 games a year. It was all we were televising. So with Houston, we did you know, pretty much every game. Well, hey, wasn't, that, wasn't that because they thought that would hurt home attendance? It was. It was. That's, that's the, hilarious. The, the Reds only allowed three home games per year to be televised because they felt it would cut into their attendance. And one was opening day, which was always a sellout. But uh, anyway, things have gone pretty well since they started broadcasting all games. Um, so we, you know, I, I always had this philosophy that I wanted to pretty much be into the game all throughout the day. Uh, and mm -hmm. I know that's that's overkill. That's So that's how the burnout happens. Right. Uh, you know, other than getting a workout, pretty much, you know, reading or going over things. So by the time I got to the ballpark, I was pretty well ready. And that's why I enjoyed just talking because, okay, we did some numbers from these players and some stats and things like that, that we can go over. But mm -hmm. what about the stories? You know, what kind of guy is this, uh, we're talking about who's pitching tonight for Montreal or whatever. And right. so we, that's why, you know, we'd go over to the other booths and talk to the expos broadcasters. Well, what does he do? Well, and that sort of thing and get the, get the storyline and things that were, uh, went beyond the numbers. And isn't it funny if you're really in tune with your partner, if you're really listening, how many times that can trigger a story or, or something that comes to mind that uh, is more relevant for the game and, and the viewer? Oh, no doubt. Well, you and I worked those games on TV you talked about. And uh, when Jim Deshays and I were working or Larry Durker and I or Alan Ashby, uh, the whole thing on TV is let the color guy talk. Uh, let him weave his stories, talk about what this picture is. You know, the, the fans have this picture there. They don't need the description. And let's let the analyst uh, go ahead and do his job. And that's that's where it gets interesting, I think. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, just a couple more things, Brownie. Uh, Alex Bregman, and, and so many Astros are doing great things, but I, I just saw this, uh, that Alex Bregman and also Mattress Mac each – uh, committed $100,000 apiece to help feed Houston area residents during this crisis. And uh, it's part of a $1 million fundraising campaign. But we just can't say enough uh, thank yous to so many of the guys on this Astros team that are really stepping up and doing a lot of great things in the community. Yeah, we're, you know, we're learning about them as people and, and where their heart is. And Alex has been outstanding. 
at helping out in the community. Gee, we go back to, you know, Hurricane Harvey, and we remember what all the guys did then under great duress of, of playing those games and trying to get to the postseason. And uh, Joe Smith and Allie LaForce have stepped up. Justin Verlander with his paychecks yeah. going to charity. You know, we, we could go throughout the whole team. Altuve, you name it. Uh, yeah, uh, Springer, Lance. They, they, yeah, Lance. They, they just uh, – these guys are exceptional in what they do in the community. It makes you proud to, to be part of it as well. It does because they get it. They understand that, okay, we're not able to play baseball right now, but there are real needs here in this community, and baseball has to take a back seat to helping people out. All right. Well, Brownie, uh, as always, and you and I talk a lot uh, besides stuff like this, but uh, it's always great catching up with you. So I, I know it's a thrill for the fans. Uh, 30 years, man, you did it here. Seven years in Cincinnati, but 30 years in Houston. This is your home, and uh, people love you here. So thanks for joining me today. Well, Sparky, uh, you're an institution, man. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, and people cannot wait to hear you do a game again. I hope it happens very soon. Yeah, we do too. So uh, go to radio at astros.com. Uh, send us some questions. Uh, make, give us some comments on what you'd like to hear. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Stay safe out there. Keep washing those hands, and we'll be talking to you real soon again. See you later. Houston, we know these are uncertain and unprecedented times, but we will get through this. We will get through this together. Together. It is important that we all take the necessary steps to ensure safety of our loved ones and our community. You're the best fans in baseball. The best. And we love you. We love you. Baseball will be back. And we cannot wait to see you. Stay safe, Houston. For the H. It's for the H. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.